Genesis 6. And it came to pass when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, that the sons of God saw the daughters of men, that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not always strive with man, for that he also is flesh. Yet his days shall be an hundred and twenty years. There were giants in the earth in those days, and also after that, when the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them, the same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. And God saw the wickedness of man, that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a just man and perfect in his generations. And Noah walked with God. And Noah begat three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. The earth also was corrupt before God, and the earth was filled with violence. And God looked upon the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted his way upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence, through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Rooms shalt thou make in the ark, and shalt pitch it within and without with pitch. And this is the fashion which thou shalt make it of. The length of the ark shall be three hundred cubits, the breadth of it fifty cubits, and the height of it thirty cubits. A window shalt thou make to the ark, and in a cubit shalt thou finish it above, and the door of the ark shalt thou set in the side thereof, with lower, second, and third stories shalt thou make it. And behold, I even I do bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh wherein is the breath of life from under heaven. And everything that is in the earth shall die. 
but with thee will I establish my covenant, and thou shalt come into the ark, thou and thy sons and thy wife and thy sons' wives with thee. And of every living thing of all flesh, two of every sort shalt thou bring into the ark to keep them alive with thee. They shall be male and female, of fowls after their kind, and of cattle after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after his kind, two of every sort shall come unto thee to keep them alive. And take thou unto thee of all food that is eaten, and thou shalt gather it to thee, and it shall be for food for thee and for them. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he. Thus far our reading from Genesis 6. Call your attention a little while to the word of God as found in Genesis 6, the second verse. That the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair, and they took them wives of all which they chose. This whole chapter, beloved, speaks in general of the events that culminated in the flood, as it is recorded in Genesis 7 and in part chapter 8. The flood by which what the Bible calls the first world was destroyed. It's rather striking in Scripture that uh, the Bible makes distinction between the world before the flood and the world after the flood and that it makes that distinction so strongly that it speaks as though that world is not the same as our world. There is a certain continuity, of course, from the world before the flood to the world after the flood. Nevertheless, the Bible makes that distinction very strongly. It does that in the second epistle of Peter, the third chapter. It speaks there of the world that then was in distinction from the world that now is. And it emphasizes, in fact, that the chief element of that world that then was, the pre-Diluvian world, was water. And it was by water that that world was destroyed, while the chief element of the world that now is, the world in which you and I live, is not water but fire. 
we are as close to the fire as the world before the flood was to the water. And this world is going to be destroyed by fire, Scripture tells us. But Genesis 6 leads up to that destruction of the first world, that destruction which was for that first world, final judgment. And so in the first part of the chapter especially, it narrates the causes and the circumstances and the judicial or legal ground on which the Lord condemned that world and executed judgment upon it. The cause was general universal wickedness. It was not only wickedness, not only depravity, there had been wickedness and there had been total depravity after all ever since Adam's fall. And wickedness had abounded. Must not forget that. If ten righteous persons had been found in Sodom later on, the city would not have been destroyed. But there was general wickedness. And general wickedness of such a kind that when the flood finally came, there was left of the generations of Seth, of the generations of God's covenant, only eight persons who constituted the church. The rest had disappeared, had disappeared either through apostasy, as we shall see, or they had disappeared through persecution which was also rife in those days. But the flood means that the general wickedness of the world before the flood had reached that point that its measure of iniquity was filled. The world was ripe for judgment. And Genesis 6 tells us not only about the cause of that judgment, but also tells us how that general wickedness came about. In general, it came about when men began to multiply on the face of the earth, and daughters were born unto them, according to verse 1. The text here doesn't stipulate any exact point of time, but of course it points to the uh, period in history when men became more numerous and when there was a greater choice of daughters. The condition was there that was necessary what follow for what follows in the words of our text. 
the description of a general amalgamation between the sons of God and the daughters of men. I think it's well that we remember also in that connection that there must have been a considerable population on the earth at this time, at the time approximately of the uh, generations of Lamech, about whom we talked last Sunday. I think we sometimes have misconceptions about that world before the flood. Uh, misconceptions as to the degree of their civilization, misconceptions also as to uh, the size of the population and the rate at which that population grew. I don't have the statistics along with me here in, in Tasmania, but I studied that once upon a time and uh, worked out in the light of the fact, of course, that men lived in those days until they were 900 and more years old. Worked out, according to a formula, how rapidly the population of the world of that day could have grown and how large it was by the time of the tenth generation when finally the flood came. And it would surprise you, I'm sure, if I were able to quote the exact statistics of the possible population and uh, figured at a very moderate rate, in fact. It would surprise you how rapidly the world of that day became populated and its citizenry uh, grew. And it's to that period that the scriptures refer here when men began to multiply on the face of the earth. Then it was that the sons of God saw the daughters of men that they were fair and they took them wives of all which they chose. I want to call your attention a little while to the amalgamation of the church and the world. Let's notice in the first place the sons of God and the daughters of men. In the second place, their intermarriage. And in the third place, the results. There's been considerable discussion of that expression, sons of God, in our text. And there is one interpretation which would make of those sons of God some kind of divine beings. As you might expect, the modern critics like to interpret 
Genesis 6 in that way. Not because they believe that such a thing ever happened. Some of the older interpreters of Scripture uh, did hold that view. But the modern critics like to interpret it that way because they want to prove that what you have here is not an historical record, but simply a strange collection of myths, myths that would be impossible in real life. According to that interpretation, the sons of God are divine beings of some kind, possibly angels, and they have sexual intercourse with the daughters of men, that is, simply with human females. And the result of that intercourse between these divine beings and the daughters of men are what are described in our English version in verse 4 as the giants in the earth, the Nephilim. And the conclusion that they reach in this connection is, as I said, that this whole thing is not history at all, but is a myth. It's not difficult to marshal objections against a view like that. Principally, our objection is that Scripture is not a collection of myths, but is the infallibly true word of God whenever it speaks. Hence, what, it, what is written about here in Genesis 6 is reality and truth. And intercourse between angels and human females is, of course, neither truth nor reality. But we mustn't overlook the fact that Scripture more than once calls men the sons of God. They are sons of God in a spiritual, ethical sense. Not in the sense, of course, that they are physically born of God or born of divine beings, but spiritually they are sons of God. Israel, for example, the whole nation is called God's son in Scripture. In Exodus 4, uh, Scripture speaks of the generations of thy children. In Psalm 73, it speaks of children and of sons of the Most High. In a passage like Hosea 1, the 10th verse. And in the New Testament, it very frequently refers to God's people as sons of God or as children of God. Besides that, it's not true that the text here in Genesis presents it as if the giants, the Nephilim, were, these, were the offspring of these misalliances. They could be, 
but they were not necessarily such. Scripture presents it that there were giants on the earth even before this. And finally, we ought to note that Scripture does not here speak of fornication, but rather of marriage, of taking them wives of all which they chose. So the reference here is in the first place to the Sethites, to the sons of God. It's plain from the preceding history that the Sethites, the descendants of Seth, in distinction from the Cainites, the descendants of Cain, were the race of the God-fearing, the seed of the woman was represented in the Sethites. And it is those Sethites who are meant when uh, reference is made here to the sons of God. Only, you must remember, that this is to be taken in the outward sense of the word. The Bible doesn't teach here a falling away from grace on the part of true children of God, but you must remember that as it always is in history, so it was in the world before the flood also. Not all who were offspring of Seth, descendants of Seth, were of God's people. Just as later on, not all was Israel that was called Israel and that was born of Israel. That's never the case. The Lord always works organically in the line of the covenant. They were not all God's people who were of God's people, as always. And so there was at this time, an intermingling of the church as it was represented in these sons of God, these historically uh, covenant members, sons of Seth, descendants of Seth, who went by the name sons of God. There was an intermingling of the church and the world, and it was evidently an intermingling of the church and the world on a general scale. Mention is made here of the daughters of men in this connection. As far as the expression itself goes, of course, daughters of men could refer to young women quite in general. But when it occurs as it does here, in contrast with the sons of God, it rather leaves the impression that what is meant here is Canaanitish women, daughters of men who were the descendants of 
Cain, who were of the carnal seed in the generations of Adam and Eve. The question is, of course, is it serious? Is it a serious thing when children of the church ally themselves in marriage with the world? And that question must be answered and can be properly answered only after we answer another question. What is marriage? Marriage, according to Scripture, is an intimate union of life and of love between one man and one woman. It's a union of life so that the two lives of the man and of the woman supplement one another on a physical level, on a psychical level, and properly speaking, on a spiritual level. They supplement each other so that they belong together and so that together they constitute one whole. And on the basis of that communion of life, there is implied in marriage a communion of love so that the married persons seek one another, desire one another, give themselves for one another again physically and psychically and also spiritually. In the third place, marriage, we must remember, is properly speaking a union for life. It's a union for life. Marriage is indissoluble. Only death can separate it. Separate in marriage. Makes no difference what the world makes of marriage. That's scripture. Marriage is indissoluble. I'm well aware, of course, of the fact that there's a certain difference between our Protestant Reformed churches and your churches as far as the Westminster Confession is concerned on marriage. But it always strikes me that even with that different interpretation that the Westminster Confession of Faith makes with respect to, I believe it's especially the passage in Romans 7, in spite of that difference, the principle set forth in connection with that whole matter is that death is the only thing that can dissolve marriage. And the Westminster, of course, takes the position that when there is uh, adultery, then there is the death of one of the parties in the marriage. And on that basis, it justifies divorce. But that's the point. Marriage is a union for life. 
Only death can separate. But it's also a union for life as far as its contents is concerned. It's a union of aims, a union of purposes, a union of ideals, a union of fundamental views, a union as to direction of life, a union of walk of life, a union of speech, a union of action. Man and wife ought to go through life as if they are not two, but one. That was established in the beginning. They are not two, but one flesh, one in principle, one in faith, one in love, one in aims, one in struggles, one in prayers, only the man as the man and the woman as the woman. In that sense, the Bible also presents marriage as a picture of the union between Christ and his church and even of the union between God and his people. After all, that whole idea of marriage uh, lies at the basis of a prophecy like the prophecy of Hosea in the Old Testament scriptures. God and his people married to one another. Now what are the requisites of that marriage? First of all, that those who are married belong together as nearly as possible from a natural point of view, simply from a natural point of view. They must be compatible as to character and tendencies. They must be compatible intellectually and even to a certain extent socially. But above all, there must be spiritual unity, the love of Christ, the fear of the Lord is certainly the most that they were fair. It's not impossible, I think, that this sort of thing might have commenced, especially in the time of Lamech, about whom we spoke last Sunday evening. It was at that time, evidently, that the woman, as woman, found herself on the foreground. That was probably the time of the, limon, the women's lib movement of the pre-Diluvian world. The woman found herself on the foreground and judging from the names of those women of Lamech's family, they were women who made the most of merely sensual 
beauty. That's the case here in our text too. What was the one outstanding thing about these daughters of men in the eyes of these sons of God? They were fair. They were fair. That really suggests, too, that these daughters of men saw to it that they appeared fair in the eyes of the sons of God. That goes with it, you know. They were fair and they knew that they were fair and they capitalized on their being fair. You can do that, you know. Women can do that. Sometimes they can do that with a little paint. Covers up the blemishes. Enhances the appearance. Sometimes said that Beauty is only skin deep. Well, sometimes it isn't even skin deep. It's on top of the skin. But whatever it was, these daughters of men were fair, and they were fair in the eyes of the sons of God. Along with that, remember, this was the time in history, as we saw last Sunday evening too, that the world began to be powerful and it began to be rich and attractive. There was wealth and there was might and there was industry and there was beauty and there was art and there was music. There was the disco and the dance floor to put it in modern terminology, these things, you know, usually go together. And the beauty, the outward sensual beauty, the beauty of the eyes, the beauty of features, the beauty of form, carnal beauty, made an impression on the sons of God. They saw, and these daughters of men intended undoubtedly that they should be seen. They saw that they were fair. From a certain point of view, that makes us think of Eve before the tree of knowledge of good and evil. She saw that the tree was good for fruit and that it was desired to make one, make one wise. There was the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the vainglory of life that was involved here. And the scripture emphasizes the subjective state here of these sons of men with 
sensuous eyes and without the love of God they looked on these women and they desired them very common thing of course in our world too and they took them wives that was the next step they took them wives of all that they chose that could possibly involve polygamy this intoxication with sensuous beauty you know is after all very short lived and therefore it also seeks gratification with other women whether in the form of polygamy many wives or whether in the form of divorce and remarriage as is so prevalent in our world but whether or not it implies that it certainly implies does our text that these sons of god desired and married any women that they chose merely on the basis of outward physical sensual beauty all other considerations were absolutely discarded you know nothing wrong with having a beautiful wife and desiring to have a, a beautiful young lady for your wife when i courted my wife i thought she was beautiful and i still think she's beautiful nothing wrong with that there's everything right about it much rather have a beautiful woman than a homely geek you would too i can tell by the fact that you laugh nothing wrong with that but you see that must not be the determining factor that's the point here that's the way it was here they desired and they married any woman merely on the basis of sensual beauty that's wrong everything else was discarded properly speaking you know a good looking woman or young lady who does not love and fear the lord is not beautiful and she certainly ought not to be beautiful in the eyes of a godly young man he ought to see that basically she's ugly far better you know to have to have a godly wife a godly young woman for your wife 
whose nose is a little bit too long than to have a young woman with a properly shaped nose who is ungodly. You know? But these young men didn't pay any attention to that. They saw that they were fear. The love of God and the fear of the Lord went out the window just like that. It wasn't a consideration. It didn't count. Now look at the results. The church was swallowed up. You can imagine perhaps some of the arguments that were raised at the time. Well, who can tell if I, if I go and court one of the daughters of Cain? Who can tell whether she might be gained for Christ? You forget all about the fact, you know, that you don't go courting a girl in order to do evangelism. Nobody does that. That's an excuse. Others say, well, do we have to be so isolated, so afraid of our Christianity that we separate ourselves for fear of being swallowed up? That's another excuse, of course. But let me tell you something. If you want to talk about that, you better have a healthy fear of being swallowed up. You're not so strong. And I'm not. We have a small beginning of the new obedience. All the rest in us is sin. That's true when you go out courting too. Better believe it. The facts are these. When God's people begin to ally themselves with the world, as a general rule, I say, when God's people begin to ally themselves with the world, the world does not become church. But the church is swallowed up by the world. That's a patent fact. That's history. And the deepest reason for all that, beloved, lies in the fact that God only is the one who converts and changes us into his children. And he does that according to his good pleasure. And he does that normally in the line of the generations of his people. What reason have we to believe then 
that if we form alliances with the world, that God will adjust to our alliances and will change the world? None. But there's also a spiritual reason. When an alliance like that is made, then normally the church does that on the terms of the world. You know, when these sons of God married wives of all that they chose, mind you, simply on the basis that they were fair. What right, what power did they have after that to speak of God? to speak of his service after they had agreed to enter into these marital alliances solely on the basis of sensuous beauty. They couldn't. Wasn't any right left to them. Can't you just about hear those daughters of men, if one of these sons of God would even so much as attempt to speak to them of the things of God, can't you hear one of these daughters of men say to her husband, listen, you married me because of my beauty. Don't start talking about that God stuff to me. That's the way it goes. That's true of all alliances with the world. And the result was general wickedness, especially after a few generations. In the first generation, when that begins to happen, you know, there's still perhaps some battle and some misery on the part of those that were really sons of God. But... God does not bestow his covenant blessings there. And in generations, there is not only gradual, but fast decline. I've seen that happen in my own ministry upon occasion. It's amazing what kind of decline there can be in the space of just one or two generations. When parents depart, the next generation always goes a bit farther away. And the second generation after that is usually lost in the world. That happened here. There was fast decline until wickedness and godlessness prevailed. And the measure of iniquity 
the measure at which the world became ripe for judgment came very quickly. Our Lord Jesus describes that world. They ate and they drank and they married and they gave in marriage and knew not. They didn't know anything about it. Paid no attention to it. Though Noah had preached for 120 years, they knew not till the flood came. They disregarded the word of God through Noah. So the conclusion of the matter, beloved, is negatively the conclusion that's spelled out in 2 Corinthians 6 that I read tonight. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Christ and Belial have no concord. And positively, the conclusion is, walk with God. Walk before him and be upright as Noah was. Walk following him and his word and walk in that way to him and to his reward. And let those who would ally themselves walk with you, not you with them. Amen. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we have stammered a few words about thy rich and beautiful and true word. We pray whatever was sinful and carnal wilt thou forgive, whether in the speaking or hearing of that word. And wilt thou apply thy word unto our hearts and lives, that we and our children may resolve to be a peculiar people here in the midst of the world, a people of the living God, to the praise and the honor and glory of thy name. Go with us in the rest of this evening. Keep us in thy care and lead us in the way everlasting. For Jesus' sake, amen.